Amy and I, we knew each other in high school, and I was not a believer, and she was not about dating non-believers, even though I was interested. I don't know that she was interested, but I was interested. But then I, I came to the Lord, which was awesome, and uh, then I go through college, and she's in Austin Cosmetology School. Not Amy. All right. Always a chance. And uh, we started to reconnect. And I don't know if you've ever gone through this with somebody or been in a dating relationship or, or whatever that may be. But when you're kind of connecting and you're getting to know somebody and you're in this process of learning who they are, uh, that is right there. That's my wife. If you know her, now you do. If you don't know her, now you do. And, and we were in this process of reconnecting, which was over FaceTime because she was in Austin and I was here in Denton, Texas. It was about 2018. And as you're going through this time, um, it's just kind of exhilarating. It's so exciting when you get to know somebody. And, and you learn little things about their life and the things that they enjoy, the things that they, they like and dislike, their personality, and all of it, as it just unravels to you, it is just so uh, enjoyable. And, and the hope is the more you, the more that you like them, right? That's, that's the goal. It doesn't happen that way with all human relationships. But, but for Amy and I, it definitely did. And I remember just feeling so honored when Amy would let me into her life and share things uh, with me of like, oh, this is something that, you know, this is my hot take or whatever, or I really like this, but I know a lot of people don't like it or whatever. Like, I just enjoyed those things. And, and whatever she would tell me, I would just, I'd, I was so delighted and I would want to take notes. And one of those, uh, one time she told me her Chipotle order, or maybe we went to Chipotle, I don't remember. But I remember I went and when I wasn't around her next, I got into my car and I put in a, a, on my notes Amy's Chipotle order, which does seem a little bit weird, but she also liked me, so it's not stalker vibes at all, and not creeper, but I remember just taking notes of like her Chipotle order, and I still have it, except now Chipotle has the app, right, and you can just go to recent orders, and you know, they take, they take all the chivalry out of life, but anyways, I remember, I was like, anything that she gave me, I was like, oh, this is awesome, or when we would talk about music that we liked, you're like, oh, and I remember I told her that I liked Towers, anybody with me on Towers, enjoy Towers, okay, if you, if you don't know Towers, you should go listen to them, T-O-W apostrophe, R-S. They're really good. And I remember I shared a song with Amy, Belly of the Deepest Love, my favorite song. But it starts with like this trumpet fanfare. And immediately, I think she said in the car, she's like, I'm not going to like this. <laughs> but because of love, she just she kept listening to it. And she would be in the car on the way to work or whatever. She would listen to Towers. And now, correct me if I'm wrong, you like Towers. Towers is one of your favorite bands. Yeah. Because we were in this, this investment of relationship where say, what the things that you love, I want to kind of align my heart to that stuff. And, and the more I learned about her, the more I wanted to be around her, and the more I wanted to be with her. And that is the hope of, of human relationships. And, and that doesn't always happen. Like I said, sometimes you learn more and you're like, not my girl, <laughs> all right? Not my guy. And that's okay. That's life. But I share all of this because I am absolutely convinced the more we learn about God, the more we will come to love him. The more we will come to be amazed by him, uh, to appreciate who, his, it, who he is. And hopefully, like Amy on Spotify, hopefully when we learn God's heart and what God loves and what God delights in, or even the things that God does not like, we would begin to align our hearts to his. And we would come to appreciate the things that, that he loves and who he is. And, and that would move our relationship forward because God is a person 
And we want to have a relationship with him. It's not just this interaction thing where I input this, I get heaven. No, it's a relationship that we want to invest time and love into it. And when God reveals things about himself, we should delightfully take note of it. That we'd be happy to tell other people, say, man, yeah, Amy gets guac. She's, a, she's in the Finer Things Club at Chipotle, right? She gets guac on her uh, burrito bowl or whatever. Like, I enjoy that. I enjoy knowing that. Like, I love going to Chipotle. We just got it on Saturday night. And, uh, and I went ahead and put guac on there. And she's like, I don't need guac. It's like, but you like guac. Because <laughs> I know her and I love her. And, and, and we have this relationship. And the hope is when God discloses things to us in his word, we wouldn't just be like, ah, theology, it's really heady, like, whatever. We would lean into that and say, I want to know more of God. Because the more we know of him, the more it will lead us into worship. And I say all of that because where we're going and what we're talking about is one of uh, Jesus's kind of extended dialogues. It's really a monologue where he just discloses his relationship with the Father and part of his nature. Specifically, the nature of the Trinity, which is a big topic. And I know some of you are like, well, please, not the Trinity. That's so confusing. But because we love God and the more we know of him, the more it will draw us to love of him and worship for him. And so that's our goal tonight. And, and I know it's a little bit lofty, but I think we're a sharp group of people and I think we're hungry. And so my hope is that we're not biting off more than we can chew, uh, but we will really, really enjoy this time. So recap, we're going to be in John 5. Just uh, if you remember from last week, Jesus heals the man, cures the man that has been uh, ill for 38 years, which is likely some kind of uh, paralysis of the legs where he is unable to walk, would kind of crawl around this man for 38 years. And then Jesus, uh, if you see in, in verse 8, he says, get up, pick up your pallet, which is it's just kind of like a bed. It, it maybe has a little bit of wood to it, but it's largely like a, a feathery pillow that they would kind of just carry around. And, and he says, pick up your pallet and then walk. And then immediately, this guy is able to walk. But at the end of verse 9, John, the writer of this gospel, gives us some very important context. He says, now it was the Sabbath on that day that Jesus healed this man. And now this guy is, is walking around, probably going to the temple to offer thanks to God, not, not knowing that Jesus was God, but he's just going to thank God. And then he comes across, verse 10, the Jews. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for, for you to carry your pallet. Now, uh, what you need to know, when John uses the term the Jews, almost every single time he is referring to the religious elite, the Pharisees, the scribes, uh, the Sanhedrin, that are in opposition to Jesus. Almost every time you read the Jews, you see these people are negative towards Jesus. They're skeptical of him. They come to oppose him. They are the people that have him crucified in the hands of the Romans. And so when he's talking about the Jews, he's saying this opposition is about to happen. And this is the first time the word persecution is going to come up in this gospel. And, and so this is a big moment for, for Jesus's ministry, but also the timetable of what is going to lead to his crucifixion. But first, they see this guy that is walking after being healed and hasn't walked in 38 years, and he is happy as all get out. He's like, I'm walking again. And then these Jews are like, how dare you walk on the Sabbath? 
Like they're just killjoys, right? They're not, they're not thankful for the miraculous work of God. They're, they probably know this guy. This guy was actually probably a pariah to them that they would cast him out because they thought it was sin that led him to being paralyzed. So they don't like this guy. And when he's healed and cured, they're not happy. All they care about is that the law or their interpretation of the law is being followed. And so they talk to him and they say, it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them and he said, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that so this guy doesn't even know who Jesus is, but he's just kind of passing the blame off on Jesus. He's like, the guy that told me, the guy that healed me said I could walk, which this guy actually has pretty good logic. He says, well, if this guy could heal me after 38 years when nobody else could, I figured he also probably had the authority to tell me I could walk. Good logic. Wish the Pharisees <laughs> caught on to that. Uh, but then Jesus finds him in the temple and has a conversation that we covered last week. And then verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. So he fully passes the blame on to Jesus, right? He probably does not have a conversion moment because his allegiance still lies with these religious leaders because he doesn't want them to be mad at him. And so he says, yeah, it was actually this Jesus guy that healed me. Verse 16, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus the first time it comes up in the Gospel of John because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a big deal to the Jews, specifically to the uh, religious elite. It was, a, they, it was huge to them. And it was also on, on Saturday, not on Sunday. So just rearrange your, your days of the week there. For them, it was on Saturday. And they, to them, the Sabbath was completely misinterpreted from what God actually meant the Sabbath to be. God, when he created after six days, he rested on the seventh day because his work was complete. Everything was good. There was no lack. Uh, it, was, it was six days, and he rested also as an example for mankind. Because God does not want us to work seven days a week, always trying to, to make money and earn a buck or whatever. He wants us to have time for us to rest, to slow down, to enjoy God's creation. And so when they say it is not permissible for you to walk around and carry your pallet on the Sabbath, they're referring to the fourth of the Ten Commandments that are laid out in Exodus. It says that you should, you should keep the Sabbath. But there's not a lot of rules under that idea of keeping the Sabbath. So what these rabbis, what the religious leaders did, uh, they had a, a thing called the Talmud where they added all of their interpretations to the Old Testament. So what we have in the Old Testament, which is 613 commands, they multiplied that in a vast amount of commandments. And they said, this is as much law as the Old Testament is. And so not you just can't keep this, the, the Sabbath. They say, you actually can't even carry your, your pillow. You can't even do that. It's on the Sabbath. You can't carry your pillow around. And they completely misinterpreted what God was intending in the Sabbath. What God is talking about is say, hey, the seventh day, the Sabbath isn't about making money. It's not about commerce. It's not about furthering your career, furthering your uh, economic status. It's to rest and enjoy what God has created and, and to be with God's people 
but they completely missed it, which that's often what happens in legalism is that you take these things too far. So they direct their attention towards Jesus, that he was breaking the Sabbath for, for letting this guy walk and carry his bed around for the first time in 30 year, 38 years, uh, but also that he would heal, that he would do work on the Sabbath as though healing somebody would be wrong in the Sabbath, which they'll have more run-ins on the Sabbath. But here's Jesus' response in verse 17. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Jesus doesn't address the, the Sabbath at all. Jesus says, uh, forget about the Sabbath. Well, we can have that conversation. We can talk about how you're wrongly interpreting the Old Testament, and they will later. Jesus will get them on that later. But he, he moves away from the Sabbath, and he says, let's talk about who I am. He says, we're not going to talk about Sabbath. We're going to talk about the Christ. And so what Jesus is doing is he is letting them in as to who he is. He says, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. When Jesus says, my father, he is claiming to have a unique relationship to God. And by unique, I mean nobody else has this relationship. The Jews would never call God my father. It's not something that they would do. The only time we see Jesus, he says our father, but often he says my father because he has a unique relationship. And in our minds today, when we think of father-son relationship, a son, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't carry the same meaning. For us, a son is somebody that is a different person altogether from their, their father, right? A lot of times we kind of want to distance ourselves from our dads, right? It's like, man, I'm a different person. I have my own life. I am independent. But the ancient Eastern mind, the Jews of that day, when they thought of a son, they think of somebody that is, is the same, that they are of the same uh, nature. It is identification with rather than distinction from. Okay, see that there's a difference. When we talk about father-son, we say, well, independent person. When they talk about father-son, they say identification with. That they, uh, in fact, a good son for them is one who followed in his father's footsteps exactly. If you were a blacksmith, or if your dad was a blacksmith, guess what you were? A blacksmith. And you would follow in his footsteps because if you have that in your blood, that's who you are. You're a blacksmith. So when Jesus says, my father, he's saying, I have the same nature as God, which is a huge statement. And he says, that's why I can do what I want on the Sabbath. He says, yeah, for you men, maybe you should rest. He says, but my father is working on the Sabbath, and so am I. Because, right, yeah, after, on the seventh day of creation, God rested. Not because he was tired, but as an example for mankind. But then after that, soon after that, Adam and Eve fell into sin, and then the world was fractured. And from that day on, God has been restoring this world, just as Jesus restored this man's hand back to its original goodness. To bring the world back to its original goodness from which he created it, where God was with man. 
So he's saying, I am in the business of restoring this world. And on top of that, he is also sustaining and maintaining the world, uh, that, that the whole world is held together by the word of his power, as Hebrew says. So if God stopped working on the Sabbath, everything would stop working. And the, and the, the religious leaders, the Jews, they would agree with this, that, that God would work on the Sabbath and this is why it is so intense, because Jesus is connecting himself with the Father. He says, my Father is working, and so am I. He is telling us that he has the same nature as God the Father. And, and we know that the Jews are picking up on this, because look at their response in verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Pretty intense right there. They want to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, their interpretation of the Sabbath, which is a wrong interpretation, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So the Jews knew exactly that Jesus was claiming to be God by his statement, that that is exactly what he is doing. And, and so Jesus, he moves the target. He says, let's not talk about the Sabbath. Let's talk about my identity. And the Jews, they hated that statement. They wanted to kill him for it. Now, if that was you, what would your next words be? If there was a group of people that are very powerful in your country, in your world, and they are huddled together wanting to kill you because they are mad at you at something that you said, we would probably do a little backtracking. In fact, I remember uh, in college, as I was studying this, I thought about this, uh, I worked some uh, like a manual labor job at, at Dallas Baptist University, shout out, go Pats. And uh, I just worked a manual labor job. And so we would do a lot of stuff for the offices. And if there were events on campus, we would kind of set those things up. And a lot of behind the scenes things, we would just drive those like work vans around, right? That was my world. And I just wore jeans and these polos. And I had this large set of keys and it was like 9,000 keys on there, you know, that kind of job. And so that was my job, I didn't know half of them but they had, I just had that many keys. And one time my boss was like, hey, I know this isn't really our department, but uh, there is a, a townhome on campus of, of seven girls and their colleague freaking out because their toilet is like messed up. Can you see if you can go in there and fix it? Which every once in a while, we would just have to fix things like that. One time these girls, uh, they like, were able to turn their air down to like 58, and they thought it was a good idea to turn their air down to 58, and it froze their uh, air conditioning. And, and so we go in there, and it is so hot in there, and we're like, what is going on? And me and my buddy, Colin, uh, we like open up the hatch, and it is just ice. Like all of it is covered in ice. This is not the story, but whatever. It's so interesting. And it's covered in ice, and we call in our boss, and he's like, well, could you try and like melt it? <laughs> we're like, what? And so we asked these girls and we're like, do you guys have any blow dryers? And they're like, yes. And so we both got two blow dryers and we like laid out these towels and these buckets of things. And we just blew <laughs> blow dryers on it for like 45 minutes and melted all of this ice. And then their air conditioning worked. It was miraculous of what we did. It wasn't miraculous, but it was cool. And, and so, you know, sometimes they would just call us and like, maybe you guys can fix it. And I'm feeling pretty great about myself. I'm like, I just fixed air conditioning. So I, I can, I can fix a toilet here. And I like, knew these girls, maybe I wanted them to think I was cool. And so I like show up, I knock on their door, maintenance, and one of the girls that I knew swings open the door. And she was like, are you here to fix our toilet? And I was like, I'm gonna see, I'm gonna look at it. I immediately was like, I don't know if I'm, I can do this. And I go in and 
you all of a sudden you just hear this like gushing and splashing noise you with me and it wasn't just like a little drip it was just like splash splash and you're like what is going on and I walk in there and first of all there's just like the carpet is getting soaked already and you walk in and it's just so much water and there was no debris other there's no other things just to be clear uh and it is like overflowing out of this toilet. And I don't know anything about toilets, but I'm like, maybe I can figure it out. So I just kind of like ring some of the stuff around and all these girls are freaking out. Like, can you fix our toilet? Like, you're, are you gonna be the one that fix our toilet? And in this moment, like, there's this, this thing where they're all freaking out. And they're basically like, are you the guy? Are you gonna be able to fix this thing? And all I go is, I'm not the plumber. I'm just letting you guys know that someone's on the way. Like they just, <laughs> they just told me to send that somebody's on the way. And so I go out there and I call, it's like, you gotta send somebody, I can't fix it. And so I immediately like, I backtrack completely when these seven girls are freaking out and like, can you fix this? Are you the plumber? I am not that guy. I am not the plumber. I freak out and say, I can't be this guy at all. And that's a silly story because it's just so funny to me that I thought, one, that it would be cool to be a plumber to like seven girls in college. Uh, like, yeah, I can fix your toilet. Like, that's stupid. That I thought that was cool, but here I am. Uh, but two, because this moment comes up where all these people desperately are like, are you this person? And I backtrack immediately. And imagine Jesus in this moment when these super powerful people are like, this guy just claimed to be God. And we want to kill him for it. You would think there might be a moment where Jesus would backtrack from that statement and he kind of walks up to him. He says, hey, guys, I just realized you took what I said that my father's working and so am I that you took that as though I was saying I was God. Like, I'm not actually God. That was a mistake. Autocorrect, whatever. You know, it happens. Miscommunication. Don't kill me. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus is going to double down on who he is, on his claim to be God, and he's going to disclose some incredible information to us. He's going to clarify his relationship to the Father, and he's going to clarify to us his role on earth. Who is Jesus in relation to the Father, and what is his role on earth verse 18 no sorry verse 19 therefore jesus answered and was saying to them truly truly i say to you when you see that in scripture jesus is about to say something very important after that all right that's just a good indicator truly truly i say to you the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing for whatever the father does these things the son also does in like manner verse 20 for the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father." He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. That's a lot there. Jesus lays out a lot of those things. And before I begin to unpack that, 
I, I want to give you a, just a, a theological term that we call the Trinity. You have probably heard that before, the, this idea of Trinity, and maybe you hear it and you're like, this is the kind of stuff in Christianity that I would just rather ignore. Like, I just kind of want to love God and just come up here and tell me what to do on Tuesday nights. But I think this is an opportunity for us when God discloses things about himself that we would lean into it and come to love him for it. So this term Trinity, it comes from the Latin uh, Trinitas is a word that's Trinity. It's not a far stretch. It literally means three in one. Trinitas means three in one. Try three. That's where the idea is there. And uh, just a really good definition for the Trinity. I, I think I got it from one of my seminary classes. So I paid like $2,000 for this definition. So you're welcome. Uh, it, we actually have it up on the screen. I think I think I gave you guys that slide. Yeah. The one true God eternally exists as three persons. Those three persons are the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are one in nature, equal in glory, and distinct in relations. One in nature, equal in glory, and distinct in relations, which is big. We'll see that quite a bit here. So we, as believers, as followers of Christ, we we do not believe that there are three separate gods. Okay, we don't believe that uh, we're, we are monotheist, mono meaning one, theist, God. We are believer in one God, one true God. But there are three persons in that one nature of God. And, and just so we're clear in this, we are talking about an infinite God and we're finite human beings. So sometimes we say things and we're like, we just have to acknowledge that that's true even if we can't wrap our minds around that completely, okay? Uh, and, and that's especially, too, when we're talking about the Trinity. So we believe that there is one God that exists in three persons. One nature, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, there's a lot of illustrations that you might hear and uh, people talking about them, but honestly, I kind of shy away from those because as you unpack them, the analogies usually fall apart, and then all of a sudden you're saying a lot of things about the Trinity which aren't actually true. So I just like to kind of stay in this definition and hold ourselves in that. Now, what Jesus has already done, my Father's working until now, and I myself am working, Jesus has already claimed to be one with God in nature. He's already claimed that we are one in nature. And they, the, the religious elite, they're, claim, they're challenging his claim of being equal with God. And, and to be fair, likely what they thought when Jesus was claiming uh, to be God is, is that they were thinking he was another God of equal power, right? He's saying, hey, we've believed our whole lives that there's one God, and now you're coming and you're doing things like some pretty crazy miracles. But if you're saying you're God, there's not two gods, right? Like we believe in one God. And, and so they thought that Jesus might be trying to take their God's place. Okay, that, that maybe there's two gods of equal power and they're duking it out or whatever. And so they're like this, is not, like, this is not good. And they were very adversarial to him for that reason. But Jesus is going to clarify that in, in verse 19. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. So what he's doing, he's clarifying to these leaders, saying, hey, I'm not another God. I'm not here to take God's place. He says, in fact, me and the Father are united. We are 
one. We are together. He says, I can do nothing of myself, but only what I see the Father doing. We are one in nature. We are in lockstep. They are always in agreement. Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are always in agreement with one another. So Jesus says, I will never do anything independently of the Father. We never disagree. We never have a difference of opinion. We never have a different approach. We are in lockstep with one another. And so what that means for us when we say he can only do what the Father does means when we see Jesus in action, we see God in action. When Jesus says something, it carries the weight of God. What Jesus does is what God does. To accuse Jesus of sin, which the Pharisees did often, is to accuse God of sin. To accuse Jesus of violating the Sabbath is to accuse God of violating the Sabbath. When the Pharisees accuse Jesus of blasphemy, a claim to be God, they're calling God a blasphemer. This is heavy stuff that Jesus is laying before them. Jesus is not another God. He is one with his Father. And I know when some of you are reading verse 19, you're thinking to yourself, if someone can't do anything by themselves, that doesn't, it doesn't seem like they're equal with God. And a lot of times when you'll read scripture, it seems like the Father's here and Jesus is kind of here, like the Father sends the Son and the Son goes. The Father says, do this, and, and, and Jesus does that. And you say, how can they be equal when it seems like Jesus is subservient to the Father? And the same with the Spirit, that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and is sent by Jesus. Like, what is this? There's this weird tension in the Trinity that we can't fully wrap our brains around. And this is actually one of the key components to the Trinity, so I'm glad you asked it. I'm very glad you asked it. Just to, to remind you, Jesus is equal with God in, in nature. Their nature, they have the same. They are both divine. However, Jesus functions in a different role than the Father in regards to the creation of the world and the plan of redemption in this world. They have different roles. They have different functions in the Trinity. The Father sends the Son in the world, into the world. The Son never sends the Father into the world. Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father in return, but Scripture is replete with examples of the Father loving the Son. Jesus is, is so invested in, in following the will of the Father. We often, or we actually never see the Father making sure he's aligning himself with the will of Jesus. So they have different roles with this, but an, an example of how can you be the same, how can you both be God, and yet one of you have a functionally subordinate role? How can both of those things be true? Well, I'll give you an example. I have a boss, Jason Fanning. He was here like two weeks ago. Uh, we have different roles, right? Je Jesus, <laughs> careful. Jason uh, will tell me, hey, you need to do this, or we need to do these kind of things, or you need to be here at this meeting, and my job, my role is, is to follow his direction is to follow his lead. But that does not mean for a second that I am a lesser human being than Jason. We're both human beings. We share the same human nature. And so I'm not lesser than him, even though he has a different role than me in our church and in our job here. And in the same way, Jesus and the Spirit, they're not lesser gods. They're both fully God. 
one in three. They all share the same nature, but they have functionally different roles. And I know this is kind of crazy, but I'll, I'll just, if you want to follow this up more, there's two theological terms that are valuable for you. One is ontological trinity. Uh, you could also type in imminent trinity if you want, but ontological trinity is a good one for you to, onto, ontology is the study of being. So it's this focus on, on who the trinity is outside of everything else, just how do they work, what, what, it's basically asking who they are. And then the other one is economic trinity. It is studying what they do. It is their activity in creation and their activity in the roles that they play in this world. So ontological trinity and economic trinity. Have fun, enjoy it. If you have questions, ask me, and I might just say, I don't know either. But I think that's important because sometimes when you're reading the scriptures, you're saying, I thought Jesus was God. Why would, why would God be telling God what to do? It doesn't seem like Jesus is God. I don't want you to freak out when you're reading the Bible because it seems like Jesus or the Spirit is, is lesser than God, is that he is like some lesser God or whatever it is. They are one in nature, equal in glory, but distinct in relations. They have different roles, but they all act together in unity. Okay, theological dense, gone. We're done. We did that. Okay, great job, everybody. So, so Jesus is going to continue his clarifying his relationship to them. He says, we are one in nature. Uh, we are equal in work. The things that the Father does is, is what I do. So we are one in nature. We are equal in works. And then verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. Jesus, he doesn't have a limited view of God's plan. He doesn't have a limited view. He has the full uh, understanding because he's one in nature with God. He knows the plan from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. We do not have an unlimited view. But Jesus does because the Father loves the Son. They have that kind of relationship that he discloses him all things as Amy disclosed her love of Chipotle to me because she loves me. Right? He discloses all of those things. He says, I will show, the Father will show him, being Jesus, greater works than these. What are the greater works? Well, first, if he's talking about uh, healing the man that has been paralyzed for 38 years, so what could a greater work be than healing somebody that's been paralyzed for 38 years? It's 21, verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. What's a greater work than curing a man from 38 years of illness? Raising somebody from the dead. The Jews, I think all of mankind, hopefully at this point, would all acknowledge that only God can give life from the dead. There's stories in the Old Testament uh, where there was a man that was a, a leper for many, many years, and he says, you want me to just give this guy like new skin that he was coming to the king of Israel? And he says, what do you think I am, God? He says, they know that only God can do miraculous things. And Jesus is equating himself that he is equal to God in power, that he can give life from the dead just as the Father gives life from the dead. Even so, the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. This is something that Jesus will prove to all of them in John 11 when he raises Lazarus from the dead after being four days in the tomb. And then, of course, when Jesus rises from the dead himself, 
he's going to prove to them that the power of God is within him because he is God. So we have Jesus is equal to God in nature, in works, and in power. Verse 22, Jesus is equal to God in authority. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the, to the Son. That Jesus is equal to God in authority, specifically the authority to judge. And we get, we get judgment all wrong when we think about, man, this person judgmental or whatever, judgy. Uh, we're, we're not being, Jesus is not going around being critical of people's shoes and outfits and their combinations and all of those things. And like, you would wear that? Like, you smell that? Like, we're not talking about that judgment here. We're talking about uh, eternally condemning someone to life without God or eternal punishment forever. We are talking about eternal destination judgment here, that in the hands of Jesus is the authority to condemn a man to eternal death or the authority to save him from it. Jesus has that authority, which is somebody, something that they would attribute to God and God alone, the Jews would. Uh, Genesis 18, 25, they call God judge of all the earth. And so what we're seeing here is the internal workings of the Trinity because all of the things that they contributed to God in the Old Testament, all of a sudden they're seeing like, who is this guy? And how is he doing all of the things that God the Father did in the Old Testament? And what they're seeing is that usually Jesus was the operator or the mediator of all of the Father's plans. Right? You see Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But then you read John 1, and what happens? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And through Him, all things were created. So as we go from the Old Testament, we just see God at a big picture, but then we get to the New Testament, and we zoom in, and we magnify, and all of a sudden you see all of these differences, and you say, this isn't just God one, it's God in three persons trinity and they're confused by this but jesus is laying it out for them that he has the power to judge because it has been given to him by the father and here is the result of jesus's authority verse 22 for not even nope that's verse 22 go to verse 23 so that when you see so that that's a purpose statement the purpose of jesus being equal with god in nature in works in uh, power and authority so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. All must honor the Son as they honor the Father. To just put all of this together in what Jesus is saying, since the Son is the reason that we exist, he is the creator. And the Son is the one who determines our eternal destiny, the authority to judge. Since the Son is the beginning and the end, the Son is to be honored even as the Father is honored. You've seen this connection that, that Jesus is making for the Jews. He's saying, I'm equal to the Father in nature, in works in power and authority and therefore worship me honor me as you would honor God see me as you would sing to God 
is everything that you think and the reverence that you have, the respect that you have with the God of Abraham, you should have for me because I'm God in the flesh. This is an audacious message that Jesus has, a true message, but an audacious message that he has for these religious leaders. And it's a message, frankly, that will get him killed. And that is exactly what Jesus wanted. He came to die, to offer us life. That's verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who has sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. He says, that's why I came. Because God in the flesh came to save man from their sin. He says, that's why I came. And he says, I want you to have this picture. Now, just to apply this for us quickly as we close here, you can't pick and choose allegiance to the triune God. You can't be like my English teacher in high school. She says, I'm a red letter Christian. <laughs> uh, or, you know, the red letter Bibles that are, are the teaching specifically when Jesus was talking. She says, I'm a red letter Christian. She says, I only follow what Jesus said. All the other stuff, like she says, the Old Testament, that's mean. That's not God to me. The apostle that Paul, like, I don't know. Like, that, that stuff's not, I'm a red-letter Christian. That doesn't fly in the triune God. You can't just kick out some parts of, of God's revelation of himself. You can't just pick and choose allegiance within the triune God. You, you can't do that. God is Trinity. God is three in one. Or another example, religious people will say, uh, they worship God. Oh, I worship God. I like God all right. But that Jesus, like, did, calling himself a Christian, this is, no, I think, I, or not a Christian, calling himself God, like, that's a little much for me. I think Jesus was, was a good teacher. I think he taught us to love, but I only, I only worship God as though Jesus wasn't God. They'll pick and choose within the Trinity. They'll claim that Jesus was a prophet, a good teacher, or a lesser God, even, than the Father. But in the end, they will deny that Jesus is one with God. They'll deny that he was equal in nature and power and glory and deserving of worship as the Father is. Just to be clear, this is Mormonism. This is Islam. This is, this is Muslims. This is uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. This is Judaism. They rejected Jesus crazy thing all of these people they will point back and say the god of abraham yeah we all worship the same god i've had many people say actually we worship the same god i'm like well you worship one third of god <laughs> you miss jesus you miss the spirit you rejected them the defining characteristic for us as christians as followers of jesus is that we worship a triune god that is three in one, one in three. We cannot reject any of them. That is what sets Christianity apart from all the other religions in the world. It's the Trinity. And it is a hard concept. It is not easy to wrap your brain around. But just to give it to you again, this, this definition, you can put it up there if you want. The one true God eternally exists as three persons. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one in nature, equal in glory, and distinct in relations. 
So I'm just going to pray for us. But as you consider this, we have many, many, many reasons to worship God, to be in awe of who he is, to be amazed at just God's wisdom, God's magnitude and power. That's our God. And he is worthy of worship because he created us and brought us into existence from the beginning to the end, and he holds our destiny in his hand. He has the power to save, and he has had the compassion to save all of us. So, Father, we are grateful for you. And we are grateful that you would just disclose this information to us of who you are. That you don't just leave us in the dark. That we would just kind of grasp at straws in the darkness without a, a real clue to who you are and what you are like and what it is that you are up to in this world and, and what role we play. But you have opened our eyes to see that you are good. So, Father, we're grateful for you. We're grateful for your son that you sent to die on the cross for us. We are grateful for the spirit that you have put in us to, to indwell in us as a seal, as an inheritance to us, a down deposit that you're not going to leave us or forsake us. That you will bring us into glory with you, that we will be like you, and we will see you as you are, and we will just worship you. So God, thanks for little glimpses of that on this side of eternity now that we have an opportunity to worship you, to praise you, because you alone are good. You alone are worthy of honor. Father, we love you. We pray these things in Christ's name.